0: If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And will disclose myself to him. Father, to know you is to love you. To love you is to obey you and to know you even more. Your word says that you are intimate with those who practice righteousness. Thank you that as we obey what we know, we grow and you show us more of yourself. And how that excites the human heart. So we cry with the Apostle Paul to know you even more is our passion in life. You've revealed your person in your word. And so as we open it, we come with a deep sense of humility today and we ask that you would help us to understand a very challenging passage. But all Scripture, you said, is given by inspiration of the Spirit of God and it is for our benefit to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, that we might be adequately equipped to do everything that you have planned for us to live out the works that you have ordained for us. So we submit our minds to the Spirit of God, our ultimate teacher, and pray that he would illumine the truth. I pray that he would help me today in my weakness, that he would strengthen me and use me and anoint me, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take God's Word this morning and turn to Daniel chapter 8? If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. It's about dead center. And after Psalms scan to the right, you'll come to Ezekiel, and right after that, you will come to the book of Daniel. I love Daniel. He's a man for all seasons. He's a man who teaches us how to morally, spiritually, and ethically live in a society that is becoming more and more pagan. He is an amazing individual. He's the prophet of the end time, but he's also the prophet of the meantime. He teaches us how to live today. He's a man who stands with integrity. He never compromises as he serves one pagan ruler after another. Now, we've already seen that what the book of Revelation is to the New Testament, the book of Daniel is to the Old Testament. And you really will not be able to understand many of the great prophetic portions of the New Testament without understanding the prophet Daniel. Now, as you can see on this slide of the book, and just fill it all in if you would, uh, when you come to chapter 7, we turn a corner in our study of the prophet Daniel. We saw the first six chapters concern Daniel and his personal friends. It's historical in nature. There's a little bit of prophecy. But when you come to the seventh chapter, it deals with Daniel and his people's future. There's a little bit of history, but it's largely prophetical. It's the prophecy side of the book of Daniel. Now, when we met Daniel in chapter 1, he was around 15, 16 years of age. When we left him in chapter 6, he was in his late 80s. And of course, it's important to realize that when you come to chapter 6, which is really a capstone event in his life there in the lion's den, that it's not the end of his life, so to speak, and that the book hasn't ended yet. There's still chapters 7 through 12. He's towards the end of his life, but the book hasn't ended. There's 12 chapters in our Protestant Bible. There's 14 in the Roman Catholic Bible. We'll talk about that later. But there's 12 that God inspired, that he gave us by the Spirit of God. And so you meet him in his late 80s in chapter 6. So how do you figure out chapters 7 through 12? Understand that 7 through 12, the four visions that we're studying, happen chronologically, but they don't happen after chapters 1 through 6. They happen in and around those times. So you see him as a teenager, we've seen him in his 40s, we saw him in his 60s, then in his 80s. And if you don't understand that, it will become kind of confusing to you. Now turn back a few pages to Daniel chapter 2, if you would. Daniel chapter 2, and look at verse 4 for just a moment, Daniel 2 and verse 4. Notice how verse 4 begins. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. And do you see right after that word Aramaic, a little footnote, number one. And if you go out into the margin of your Bible, it tells you there's a marginal note. It says the text is in Aramaic from here through 728, which is what we finished. That's the end of chapter 7 last week. Now, most of you know that God inspired the Bible in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. The New Testament is virtually all Greek with a few sentences in Aramaic. The Old Testament is virtually all Hebrew with a few chapters here and there in Aramaic. And in the early portion of our series in Daniel, I explained why the Aramaic sections were Aramaic. Let me remind you with this portion. When you come to chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7, it's in Aramaic because, number one, it's the language of the Babylonian court. We saw Daniel and his three friends learning that language when they came to Babylon. It's a Semitic language of Hebrew, so it's very similar, but it is distinctly different. And so they're involved in that three-year curriculum. And so it being the public official language of Babylon... God wanted to put this portion of Scripture in Aramaic to set the Gentile nations and this Gentile empire that is in authority when Daniel writes this book. Secondly, since this prophecy uh, is concerning the Gentiles, he puts it in Aramaic. So as you can see in this chart, Hebrew Chapter 1, 1 through 2, 4, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, added almost a thousand years after the Bible was done. Chapter 2, the middle of verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7, where we finished last time, that deals with the prophetic section as it relates to the Gentile nations of the world, what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. And then chapter 8, where we begin today, we deal with the prophetic history of Israel. We're going to do all of chapter 8 today. We're going to take it as one unit. Some of the chapters we'll spend three or four weeks on. So you need to fasten your pew belts today because we're going to work hard, all right? Now, with that said, let's get to your note-taking outline. If you want to jot down some notes for study, and this is one of those passages if you really want to know God's Word, you're going to have to search it, go back and study it, maybe listen to the message again. It opens with the introduction to the vision. This is a very, very heavy vision because when Daniel comes to the end of this vision, we read in verse 27, that I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the, biz, the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision and there was none to explain it. Now, if we can grasp what Daniel grasped, we'll understand why why he reacted the way he did. So we discover in verse 1, first something about the time of the vision. By way of introduction, he tells us something about the time of the vision. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Immediately you read that and you say, Belshazzar, this is chapter 8, I thought he died back in chapter 5. The night Darius the Mede came in and conquered the kingdom. He did. But again, remember, chapters 7 through 12 fit in and around the first six chapters. Let me give you a chart so you can see it visually. The book opens with Daniel and his three friends coming in the first deportation from Jerusalem. The Babylonian captivity begins. Chapter 2, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream. Daniel interprets it. It's a dream that explains the history of the nations beginning with Daniel's day all the way until the second coming of Christ. Of course, in that dream, the first kingdom with a head of gold represents Nebuchadnezzar. He's rather enthralled, so he builds a statue all out of gold and he asks everyone to bow down and worship. And of course, Daniel's three friends do not. When you come to the fourth chapter, we find this man whose wings were plucked, who was given a new heart, as we saw in the vision of the seventh chapter. He is humbled, and he lives like an animal for seven years. You'll meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday. God can save the worst of folks. Between chapters four and five, chapter 5, being the fall of Babylon, that night when Darius the Mede sees the handwriting on the wall, and God brings, or when Belshazzar, the king, sees the handwriting on the wall, and Darius the Mede comes in and conquers Babylon. Between 4 and 5, two visions, the one we studied in the last three weeks in chapter 7, dealing with the times of the Gentiles, and the vision that we're going to study today that will take us all the way to the coming Antichrist, the ram and the he-goat. Then chapter 5 takes place, and then one of the most remarkable prophecies in all of the Word of God, many a Jewish person has been converted by the ninth chapter. It's the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. It's one of the most fascinating and profound prophetic portions in all of Scripture. We'll spend at least three weeks in that section. Then Daniel and the lion's den. So between five and six, you have the 70 weeks prophecy. And then the final vision is introduced in the 10th chapter where you see the dark side. You see what is operating in the invisible realm. You'll never read the news the same way when you read the 10th chapter. And it serves as an introduction to the final vision and conclusion found in chapters 11 and 12. So it opens in the third year of Belshazzar. So that's after the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and before the overthrow of Belshazzar, the night when Darius the Mede came in. So Belshazzar, we know from the book of Daniel, in secular history documents it. Daniel is one of the most documented books in all of the Bible by secular history. That this man reigned for 15 years. So the night that Daniel sees the handwriting on the wall, he's around 67, 68 years old. This is the third year of the king's reign, so you can put out in the margin 551 B.C. That's a firm date. It's 7-1, you have 553 B.C. Two years have gone by. Remember, you go down before Christ. So we're at 551 B.C. Two years have transpired, which has given Daniel the prophet enough time to digest the prior vision. So that's the time of the vision. Verse 2 also gives us the place of the vision. We are told in verse 2, I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the city of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Where in the world is Susa? Where is the province of Elam? Where is the Ulai Canal? That's a significant notation. Now, you'll read of some places in the Bible, like, you know, Gog and Magog, you say, where is that? Well, what changes sometimes are the names of geographical regions. I mean, just think in the last hundred years or so. St. Petersburg became Petrograd. Petrograd became Leningrad. And then Leningrad is now back to St. Petersburg. Well, this place, Elam, remember when we did the book of Genesis and we were in the Table of Nations? And I told you, if you really want to study the Bible, you're going to come back to that chapter over and over and over again. Remember Noah had three sons: Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, his son Shem, had some sons, and one of his sons' names was Elam, and so we have the Elamites. And so the capital of this province, known as Elam, was in a place was Susa. Today it is modern day Iran, and of course this is the place where Daniel is buried, is pictured here. Daniel was to ancient Iran, what we call it today, what Ben Franklin was to the United States. He was very well esteemed. He was not technically one of theirs, obviously. He was a Jew from Israel. But they greatly esteemed him. And they've honored his burial place for centuries until recently ISIS has come in and totally destroyed it. It doesn't exist anymore. In modern terms to take some of these names. Think of the river Uli as the Potomac, and Susa as Washington, D.C. And then you can understand the gist of what he's saying. He's basically saying, I was standing in the most prominent nation of the world, in the capital that had a river that flew through, flowed through it, and I saw what God was going to do in and through that particular nation. So Daniel is transported in his mind in this vision 350 miles east of Babylon to the future capital of Medo-Persia. Remember, at this point, Medo-Persia is just a village. It's very, very unimpressive. But in the next decade, it's going to be transformed. Now, if you remember Daniel's vision of Medo-Persia, it was the Medo-Persians, as we studied in the second chapter and the seventh chapter, that overthrew the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, all right? That's the introduction to the vision. Secondly, there's some information in the vision that I want to... to discern, the information in the vision. It falls in three distinct scenes. First, we find the vision of the rambunctious ram. The vision of the rambunctious ram found in verses 3 and 4. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. And I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. So Daniel sees this ram and has two horns, and it butts in three directions, westward, northward, and southward. You may be thinking, Pastor Carl, you know, what do you think the ram is? Well, I don't have to guess because in the interpretation he tells me in verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Isn't that neat? We don't have to guess. We know the ram represents the empire after Babylon known as the Media-Persian Empire. Notice again, verse 3, in this vision, Daniel sees a ram, and it has two horns. However, he emphasizes, if you notice in the verse, two horns were long, um, and it's, what's unusual is that one horn is higher or longer than the other horn. And we're told that the ram butts in three directions, west, north, and south, and in that order and that it was impossible, according to verse 4, to stop this ram because he did as he pleased. Now, if you remember, the first time Daniel is given a vision of this empire, it's a bear that is raised up on one leg, Medo-Persia. It's also Nebuchadnezzar had a vision, but when Daniel's given the vision, it's the bear that's raised up on one leg. In this particular vision, it's a ram with two long budding horns depicting Really, it's vicious, hateful nature. But he underscores that one horn is longer than the other. And again, that's very fitting if you've ever studied the Medo-Persian people. First, that the horns are long because they were a vicious people. They were a fierce people. In fact, 150 years before they ever come into existence, Isaiah the prophet writes about this empire. Let me read to you from Isaiah 13. You might want to put it in the margin next to this verse, Isaiah 13, 17 through 18, because God describes the vicious nature of these people. Behold, I am going to stir up the medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. They remind me of Isis. They're as fierce as a bear, but they have a long budding horn like a ram, and they have no compassion on any of the people that they attack. And like the bear that was lopsided, raised up on one side to show two dimensions of this kingdom, this ram has two horns, one longer than the other. And again, God describes how this empire would unfold. Now, the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. So one horn came up ahead of the other horn, but the second one in the end was longer than the first horn. This is a hyphenated kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. So if you remember Daniel 5, let me read to you 30 and 31. On the night the Babylonian Empire was overthrown, we studied this. That same night, the same night the handwriting was on the wall and Daniel interpreted it. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean or Babylonian king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. You say, well, I thought the second great empire was the Medo-Persian Empire. Yes, it was. Why did they refer to him as Darius the Mede? Because the night they came in, there were two armies, the Medo army and the Persian army, led by Darius. But one was, the sh- was stronger than the other. So when this empire began, Darius the Mede was the prominent leader, and that was the prominent side to the empire. But as time went on, one horn outgrew the second. And so we will come to Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1, and we read there, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. And so when you come to the 10th chapter, he is going to highlight the Persian side of the Medo-Persian empire because one horn outgrows the second. You follow me? All right, good. So Cyrus the Mede becomes mightier. uh, Cyrus the Persian becomes mightier than Darius the Mede. And so Daniel says here in verse four, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. And so the ram is budding in three directions. First, he attacks westward, and he overthrows Babylon. Then he attacks northward, and, he, and, and all the way for, from to the Caspian Sea, he overthrows Lydia. And finally, he attacks southward, and he overthrows Egypt. That is precisely how secular history records the military might of this empire. And this is why people are bothered by the book of Daniel, because Daniel is writing about it when they are just a little tribe of nothing. And so when the Persian's empire uh, come to might and that horn grows large, you begin to see God working, and he works through a man by the name of Cyrus. Now Cyrus is an interesting man, because 150 years before Cyrus is even born, God prophesies of him not only of what he will do, but he writes his name in the Holy Scripture 150 years before he is even born. Isaiah the prophet, who ministered during the time of Uzziah, Jotham, and so forth, he writes about this man, Cyrus, and what he is going to do. And again, this drives the liberal critics crazy. How can anyone write the future? If you start with the presupposition that there's no such thing as the supernatural, if you can't believe Genesis 1-1, you can't believe much of the rest of the Bible, so God put the key in the front door. And so God wrote of this man ever before he was born, and there are aspects of Isaiah that not even the most liberal critic can deny. Isaiah, remember, he lives around seven. He lives and prophesies around seven hundred years before Christ, and there are aspects of the book of Isaiah that Jewish people, the church fathers, the reformers—they all dated it. So how do they get around Cyrus? Because he's in part of that section of Isaiah that they cannot deny. They say it's just a coincidence. And then Isaiah has all these other prophecies. And the way they get around it is they say there's either two or three authors to Isaiah. They speak of Deutero-Isaiah or Tritero-Isaiah. And when you hear some pastors saying, well, this is 2nd Isaiah or 3rd Isaiah, you are listening to an apostate and you ought to get up and leave and find another pastor. And so God is writing in advance. Now think about this for just a second. In the Old Testament alone, there's over 300 prophecies concerning the first coming of the Messiah. Dr. John Walford, who's, in my opinion, the greatest prophecy scholar of the 20th century, he cataloged 333 to be specific. But there's over 300 prophecies that all deal with Christ's first coming. Dr. James Hugg, a physicist from Stanford University, tried to figure out what was the probability that someone in their lifetime could fulfill just 50 of those prophecies by chance. And this statistician said it was 1 times 10 to the 160th power. Now, I don't know what you call 1 with 160 zeros after it, except I would call it the supernatural inspiration of Scripture. God knows the future, he knows the beginning and the end, and there's no other book on the face of the earth that has fulfilled prophecy in specific minute detail except the Bible alone. So here's the vision of the rambunctious ram, now in verses 5 through 7, and he's going somewhere, so stay with me, this is important. In verses 5 through 7, we have the vision of the galloping goat. As Daniel thinks with utter amazement at the conquest of the ram, another animal appears in the scene. The Hebrew text refers to him in some of your translations as a he-goat. Literally, it reads, a buck of the goats. And we're told that this he-goat, this ram, this male goat, has a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Verse 5 begins, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west, over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And so this male goat with this conspicuous horn between his eyes moves so swiftly, it appears his feet don't even touch the ground. And as he approaches the ram, verse 6, he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him with his mighty wrath. Look at verse 7. I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at him and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. You say, well, what do you suppose that means, pastor? Well, verse 21 tells me, I don't have to suppose. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So there's no mystery here. We learn that this empire that follows Medo-Persia is the Grecian Empire, and uh, of course, the first king in the Grecian Empire was Alexander the Great, and he seemed to literally fly. My son is an officer in the Marine Corps, and he was telling me, you know, they still study Alexander the Great in the Marine Corps in some of his battles. He was a genius of sorts in terms of how he handled his army with lightning speed, People were scared to death of the man. He was the son of the brilliant Philip of Macedon, and his mother's name was Olympus. One biographer writing of Alexander said Alexander inherited the best quality qualities of both his parents. His mother taught him that he was an ancestor of the god Anchiles, uh, namely from her side of the family, and that his daddy, Philip, was a descendant of the god Hercules. Now, you talk about motivating a young man, and of course, at the age of 14, it is said that he broke a horse that no one could ever, ever break, and he used that same horse to run all of his battles until his death. And it was his father, Philip, who said, Alexander, seek a kingdom worthy of yourself, for Macedonia is too small for you. And so he decided to conquer the world. Now look, if two pagan parents with pagan theology can motivate their child to greatness. What we should we do as believers in the one true God who have the word of God? We need to help them to see what God has called them for and what he has destined them to be. And so in verse 6, in describing Alexander, we're told that he rushed at him, this ram with two horns, and his mighty wrath. In verse 7, we're told that this male goat approached the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. And that's exactly how Alexander came, nursing a grudge that these people had had for 150 years against the Persians. And so in 331 BC, Alexander the Great comes, he Devastates the Persians. This battle is studied to this day. It's one of the bloodiest battles in the history of military operations. Look at verse eight. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So Daniel is prophesying what is going to happen to Alexander and his kingdom. Now remember, he writes, ever before Greece even exists as a power, they are a small tribe at this point. And indeed, Alexander the Great magnifies himself. He gave himself that title. When we were in Jerusalem a few years ago, we were standing at um, the walls, one section of the ancient walls where Suleiman the Magnificent had built the section of the wall. And of course, Suleiman the Magnificent gave himself that title. And one of the guys said, how do you like to be called Carl the Magnificent? He said, you don't suppose this guy had an ego problem, do you? Well, look, Alexander the Great, he takes that title upon himself. But at the zenith of his kingdom, his horn is broken. At the age of 33, he is, gets an arrow in his chest. It becomes infected, and he dies suddenly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And then four generals come, four generals that worked for Alexander, and they divide his kingdom into four pe- sections, as this next slide shows. Cassander is given Europe. I mean, how's that? You know, your boss dies, and here you can have Europe. Lysim- Lysimachus is given Asia Minor. Seleucus, he's given the Middle East, and Ptolemy is given Egypt and North Africa. And again, we don't have to guess what these uh, four horns represent, because in verse 22, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms, which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So there's four generals coming. They're going to take over Alexander's kingdom, but they're not going to have the same might and power and prestige that he did. And I want to remind you, this is written again, when Daniel is living in Babylon, and these people are know-nothing people, and he is writing the future. The critics hate Daniel. They can't stand Daniel because it affirms the accuracy and the inspiration of Scripture. So there's the vision of this rambunctious ram. Then there's this vision of the galloping goat. Now there's the vision, and this is where he's leading us, of the horrible horn. Verse 9, Out of one of them, came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. So as Daniel's vision continues, he says, out of one of them, that is, out of one of the four divisions of Alexander's empire that were given to his four generals, came a rather small horn. Uh, The ESV, King James says, a little horn, though technically it is a different Hebrew word. So the New American Standard is most precise in using a different word and calling it a small horn. But what I want you to see, and this is where God is going to take us, and the angel Gabriel is going to show you, and Christ is going to confirm it in the New Testament, that this little horn that we're going to study is going to become a picture in illustration of the little horn we already studied in chapter 7. The man's name is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Antiochus Epiphanes. One guy in seminary says, Antiochus Epiphany Not exactly. It's Antiochus Epiphanes. And again, he's writing this as a prophecy. So the critics who attack the book of Daniel, and they make Daniel... An historian of sorts saying that, yes, there was a real man, Daniel, but he never wrote this book. This was written centuries after because it is so precise. They're saying two things about the Bible. Number one, they're saying it is a dishonest book because this is being written as a prophecy. And number two, they are calling the Lord Jesus a sinner, because in Matthew 24, 15, he will quote the prophet Daniel, and he will refer to Daniel not as Daniel the historian, but as Daniel the prophet. And so the vision skips from the time of Alexander's empire until after it's divided, and then out of one of those divisions comes this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, who becomes a picture of the coming Antichrist. But don't confuse him with the little horn of chapter 7 that we studied. Here on this chart, you can see the little horn in chapter 7, if you remember, came from the Roman kingdom. Rome is the fourth kingdom. It never is conquered. It just kind of falls apart from within. But the Bible teaches that at the end of time, it's going to be revived, that there's going to be 10 nations that are come together in a coalition. And from this, uh, from these ten nations, among them will come an eleventh nation who's going to overthrow three. And this eleventh nation is going to have a world leader that we call the Antichrist. And he's going to persecute God's people for three and a half years. We're here in chapter eight. This little or small horn comes from the third kingdom of Greece. Alexander dies, four generals, one of those four. There's a little horn that comes up. He's a fifth horn, so to speak, who comes out of one of the four horns, and he persecutes God's people, not for three and a half years, but for 2,300 days. But the Lord Jesus, because we're going to see this man again in the 11th chapter, is going to reference him, and he sees him as a type, as an illustration of this coming Antichrist. You know what a type is. A type is a prophecy in the Old Testament that's given by picture. Like uh, Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah offering Isaac. He is a type of Christ where the Father offers his only begotten Son. Well, here we have a type, here we have an illustration of the Antichrist in this man, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Now, Daniel highlights two dimensions of this coming uh, man's career. First, it concerns the little horn's battles. Uh, in describing this rather small horn, we're given in verse 9 some of the prophetic details concerning his battle strategy. We're told in verse 9, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land. And of course, that's precisely how the infamous brother of Cleopatra, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, conquered these lands. First he went southward and he overthrew Egypt. Then he went eastward and he overthrew the region of Babylon. And then he moves towards the beautiful land. Now if you have the new American standard, you will see those words beautiful land are capitalized. And the translators were right in doing that because this is a proper name. In the New King James, they capitalize it, and they call it the Glorious Land. The Hebrew is Charetz Asipi, and it is a Hebrew word that literally means the glory of gems. When God looks down on planet Earth, he sees Israel as the beautiful land. Now, some of my dear Reform friends, I love them in the Lord, but they are so wrong to say that the church is the new Israel, that God is done with the people of Israel. No, the prophet Jeremiah, when he gave the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, said as long as there's a sun and the sky and the stars are there, that's how long I am committed to the people of Israel. That's what God says, and we would be wise to listen to what God says. We are not the new Israel. Israel is the apple of his eye. In God's mind, he calls it in one text the center of the world. When I was a kid, and we would have those flat maps, of the world the united states was always in the center that's not politically correct anymore so they don't make them that way but that's how they were always done in the 60s and 70s in america well if god were to make a flat map of the world he'd have israel front and center And there are two prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, who's a contemporary of Daniel, who describes Israel, this place, as the glorious or the beautiful land. Now, in addition to his battles, and they unfolded exactly as the prophet said. No one disputes that. You can get a history book and read it. Secondly, in verse 10, he tells us about the little horn's blasphemies. The little horn's blasphemies. We're told here, first, that he attacks the saints his blasphemies come in three areas. First, he attacks the people of God. We read in verse 10, it grew up, this little horn, to the hosts of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Now this term, stars or hosts, is used in two ways in the Old Testament, either of angelic beings or God's people. And the context must determine what is in view. Here he's speaking of the people of Israel. Let me give you some illustrations. Let the Bible interpret itself. In Genesis 15 and verse 5, uh, God takes Abraham when he's 85 outside of his tent. And he says, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So he likens people to stars, to Abraham's descendants. When he's 120 years old, just after he attempted to offer up Isaac... God said this in Genesis twenty-two, seventeen. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. In Genesis 12, and verse 3, we will come to this at the end of Daniel in the conclusion. And God describes those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. God describes those who lead people to the Messiah like the stars in the heavens. Now, Hollywood has its stars, and God has his stars as well. And those of you who are involved in bringing people into the kingdom, God has a special honor for you in the coming days. And so here, this small horn grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. History records very specifically how, in this apocalyptic book, how Antiochus Epiphanes, he's using symbolic language, how Antiochus Epiphanes trampled down the saints of God. He took, when he came into Jerusalem, an apostate Jew who hated the God of Israel, and he made him the high priest. Then he took the Greek god Zeus and he put him in the temple of God. Added to this, he profaned the Sabbath day and he told the Jewish people, if you want to keep it, then you're going to die. In fact, history records that Antiochus Epiphanes IV killed and murdered over 50,000 Jews in his day. He was the Hitler of his day. He trampled on the people of God. Is it any wonder that this guy who took to himself Antiochus Epiphany, Antiochus the Glorious One, The Jews called him Antiochus Epimanes. That is, Antiochus the Madman. So he attacks the saints. Secondly, the little horn attacks the sanctuary. When a man's evil activity is allowed to go unchecked, his heart is encouraged to keep going into that evil. It's a biblical principle. So it was not enough for Antiochus to attack the people of God. He sought now, he seeks now to attack the place where God's people worship. Verse 11. It, this little horn, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So this verse explains how Antiochus both attacked and profaned the temple of God, the sanctuary of God. First, we're told that this small horn magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the hosts. And if you look into verse 25, you discover this is the Lord God, his Messiah, who's referred to there as the Prince of Princes. And so this man, who is a big shot of sorts, who boasts great things, he defies what God says to do in the law of Moses. And again, he's a picture of this coming man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, the beast, the little horn, Who will defile God's temple? We're told here, he removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of the sanctuary was thrown down. So there in Jerusalem, he stopped the daily sacrifices that God had prescribed for the Jewish people. He ordered them stopped, and he exalts himself above the prince of princes. Verse 12 says, and on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. Now, the transgression is the reason why Antiochus Epiphanes is able to do what they do. God is visiting judgment on his people. You see, when a people are in rebellion, God does not hear the prayer of that people. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. And so after the Babylonian captivity is all over... The people come back to Israel, and instead of repenting and getting right with God, they continue to live in their sin. And so this man has freedom to go against God's host, God's people. He has freedom to abolish what's called here the regular sacrifice. He attacks the saints. He attacks the sanctuary, but the little horn also attacks the scriptures. Look at the end of verse 12. In it, that is the small horn, will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Now, the Jews love the Scriptures. And those pious Jews who obeyed God after the Babylonian captivity came back and spent their lives copying the Scriptures and preserving the Word of God. Antiochus Epiphanes recognizes their love for Scripture, so he wants to mock them. And to mock them, Antiochus takes a pig and he goes into the temple of God, into the Holy of Holies, and he slaughters this pig, and he throws the blood all over God's holy place. Now, you know, a pig is an unclean animal. It's reprehensible to the Jews. You know, I recently went to a Bible study that some of our Indian brethren invited me to, and I spent about 11 hours one day smoking to Boston Bud. I thought they would just love it. I mean, it was beautiful. It just fell apart, beautiful smoke ring. It couldn't be Nicer. And I brought it. They said, what's that? I said, oh, that's, a, that's pork. Boston bought. Everybody got kind of quiet. and Nobody looked at it and did anything with it. And I saw him eating all around it. And one dear brother Marvin just wanting to be gracious to me. He took a little bit and put it in his mouth. But you know what a pig is? A pig is nothing but a buzzard with four legs. That's all. For, for them to eat pig... I understand it. I'll bring chicken next time. For them to eat pig would be like me coming to your Thanksgiving dinner and bringing one of our South Carolina buzzards, turkey buzzards. That's how they view it, all right? Well, here's Antigus, and he takes the blood of this pig, and he, and he flings it all over this place we call the Holy of Holies, and he mocks the living God. Now, people often ask, as the psalmist does, why do the wicked prosper? It's not because God does not see. It is not because God does not care. But as 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 says, the mystery of iniquity must be completed. God cares, God sees, and God does not usurp man's free will. He allows in his permissive will man to act freely, but someday God's going to fix it. Now, that's the introduction to the vision. That's the information in the vision. Finally, or thirdly, I want you to see the interruption during the vision. There's an interruption before he gives the interpretation, and it's a very important interruption. Now, to some degree, I've been interpreting the vision as we move along. But unlike Daniel, he didn't have the interpretation. It hadn't been given to him yet. And so he is basically thinking, what is this all about? You know, the prophets were so inspired, Peter tells us in his first epistle that they would write the scriptures. God worked through their personalities. They weren't like robots. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit, and you see different writing styles. But then after they wrote it, they had to go back and study it to see what it meant. That's how inspired they were. And so it's like Daniel is seeing this vision be like a stenographer uh, writing down the lecture of a PhD in physics, and he has no idea what it's about, but he's writing it down, and and then he wants to understand what it's all about. So there's this interruption, and we are signaled that there is interruption with the very first word in verse thirteen, the word "then," and. I want to make two observations concerning this interruption. First, what was overheard by Daniel? Let's think about what was overheard. There are two angels that are talking and speaking to one another, and he overhears it. Notice verse 13. Then then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? So here's one angel asking another angel, you know, on some of the TV shows and popular pagan literature on angels that fill shelves in the bookstores in America, Angels are sometimes presented almost as omniscient people, but they're not. They are persons, they're not human persons, they're angelic persons. We will judge angels someday, but they are just like us in that they are created and they are finite. So this one angel, knowing of course that Daniel is listening, please tell me how long the small horn will attack the sanctuary and how long he will attack the saints of God and attack the scripture. And the answer comes in verse 14, notice. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. For 2,300 evenings and mornings, evening and morning, the first day, evening and morning, the second day. It's a Hebraism found all the way through the Old Testament that refers to a literal 24-hour day. And so for 2,300 days, this is going to take place. That's about 6.3 years. And by the way, it matches perfectly what secular history records. Because Antiochus arrives in Jerusalem in 170 B.C. He immediately forbids the Jewish people to follow their religious practices, their Sabbaths. And um, in 167 B.C., that's when he goes into the temple and he slaughters the pig, and anger amongst those God-fearing righteous Jews is just building and building and building and building and building until this man, Jake, uh, uh, Judas Maccabeus, or Judas of the Maccabeans as we often refer to him, he comes and he attacks Antiochus and his army, he overthrows them, and he restores and cleanses the temple. We call it today Hanukkah. It's called the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. And it's referenced in the New Testament in John chapter 10. And so uh, 6.3 years, just like God said, hundreds of a few hundred years before it ever happens. Again, this is why they don't like Daniel. They say, no one could write like this. He has to be writing in the past. After it happened, he can't be writing the future. So that's what he overheard. Secondly, what was overwhelming to Daniel? Well, first he's overwhelmed by the man, as we're going to read of him here in verses 15 and 16. We read of this man, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one that looked like a man. This angel looked like a man. Why? Because angels can appear like people when they come to earth. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, in the invisible realm, when the church gathers for worship, the Bible says there are angels that are here watching us. Paul tells us that. But sometimes there can be angels among us. The guy next to you, you've never seen him before, he might be an angel. He said, it looks more like the devil to me, Pastor. Well, listen, uh, they come in a human appearance. And notice how this angel is positively identified. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel! Give this man, meaning Daniel, an understanding of the vision. Now, there are only two named angels in the Bible, Gabriel and Michael the archangel. And Gabriel appears four times in Scripture, first here in chapter 8, again in chapter 9 of Daniel, and then twice in Luke 1. And in each of the four places, he comes with a message to the Jewish people. Here in this seventh, 8th uh, chapter, in the ninth chapter, he's going to come with a message concerning the times of the Gentiles and the coming of the Messiah. Uh, later, Zechariah the priest, he will come to him. Remember Zechariah? He was married to a woman named Elizabeth. And the angel Gabriel comes and tells him about a son he's going to have who he is supposed to name John. We know him as John the Baptist. And most famously he appears to another Jewish woman by the name of Mary, telling her that she's going to carry the Messiah. So Gabriel is a messenger angel. And his focus throughout the scripture is he comes and he speaks truth on behalf of the people of Israel and how it applies to the rest of us. And he comes from the very presence of God, the scripture says, from the throne room of God. And so when Daniel sees this angel, verse 17 says, so he came near." to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Now the gulf between a holy angel who comes from the very presence of God and a fallen, mortal, sinful man is so great, he's just terrified he falls on his face. So he's overwhelmed by the man, but also he's overwhelmed by the message. Beginning again in verse 17, this Gabriel comes not to terrorize, but to teach. And so we read, But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Don't miss that. God is telling Daniel through this messenger angel Gabriel that the vision pertains to the end, to the future, to the end of time. And we're going to see all the way until the time that Jesus comes again. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. He's overcome by the terror. Today we might say he fainted, he passed out. Well, you can't take in anything in that state. So the angel Gabriel touches him and he stands on his feet and he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation." We call this future seven years that is coming the tribulation period and the midpoint where it gets really bad, the great tribulation, to be technical. In the Old Testament, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble and it's called the indignation. God speaks of wrath. An in indignation that is going to come upon the world. It's going to be the outpouring of his judgment on sin. Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation. For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And I want you to see three key repeated phrases here in verses 17 and 19. Because they unlock the significance of this vision. In verse 17, he emphasizes that what he is about to say doesn't simply apply to this guy in Antiochus Epiphanes, but it pertains to the time of the end. You see that? Look in verse 19. He he tells us that it's going to occur at the final period of the indignation, during the Great Tribulation, when the Antichrist, this false Messiah, will come on the scene. And again in verse 19, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And by the way, he'll use this phrase another time when we come to the 12th chapter in the 4th verse, where he speaks once again of the appointed time of the end. And it is clear, crystal clear from that text that he's talking about that time when Messiah will come and raise the dead out of the graves. Now furthermore, as we're going to see in a moment, the career of this little horn, described in verses 23 through 25, Perfectly fits the career of the coming Antichrist. But the point I want you to see this morning is that the angel Gabriel, as the Lord Jesus will do, is going to paint Antiochus Epiphanes as a type, as an illustration of this coming world ruler. He is, in essence, the Antichrist of the Old Testament. He foreshadows what is still ahead of us. Now, as this slide shows, many times in the Old Testament, there is what we call a near and a far fulfillment. A near fulfillment that could happen in months or maybe in a hundred years. And then a far fulfillment way out there in the future. A lot of you know Isaiah seven fourteen: Behold, a virgin is going to conceive and bear a child. And it's near fulfillment as it applied to Ahaz, but it's future fulfillment down the corridors of time. The law of what we call double fulfillment. And again, you see illustrations of this. You see Abraham, as I mentioned, up there on top of Mount Moriah, offering his son who willfully lays down his life and doesn't get off that altar. And he's ready to plunge the knife through his chest. And it is a picture of Golgotha because the Lord Jesus dies on the same mount, Mount Moriah. And he dies there willingly laying down his life. This is the law of double fulfillment at work again, but as it concerns the coming Antichrist. Now, that brings us to the interpretation during the vision. The interpretation during the vision, and it begins very quickly with the interruption, uh, the interpretation of the rambunctious ram. The interpretation of the rambunctious ram. We read here in verse 20, the ram which you saw with two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. That's the rebunctious ram we just studied. That's the Medio persian empire. But he doesn't want to linger here. He wants to get to the significance of where he's heading, and it concerns Antiochus Epiphanes as a type. And so then we read in verse 21 and 22 the interpretation of the galloping goat. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. That's Alexander. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And so we've seen that, and we've seen how uh, Alexander comes, and he's immediately extinguished at the height of his career, and four generals come in and take over, and from one of those four divisions comes this little horn. And that brings Gabriel to where he wants to focus, the interpretation of the horrible horn. When he gives this interpretation, he spends the bulk of his time here because of its significance as it relates to the appointed time of the end. Yes it refers to Antiochus Epiphanes the 4th but to much more than Antiochus Epiphanes the 4th. And this king, in that day, had four characteristics that will perfectly mimic this coming king, uh, this coming world leader that we call the Antichrist. Four characteristics are highlighted about this coming leader's life. First, the Antichrist will have a hellish ministry. We read here in verses 23 and 24, In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise... Insolent and skilled in intrigue, his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. So a king is going to arise in the latter period of their rule, the end of time. And again, the immediate context relates it to these four kingdoms and the four divisions and this small horn or little horn that comes out of the Seleucid dynasty that pictures this coming Antichrist. And we're told he will come when the transgressors have run their course. Again, after the Babylonian exile, the Jewish people come back into the land. They do not repent of their sin. They continue in their sin. And it gets progressively worse. And because they don't repent, God uses a pagan king to judge them. Very often in the Scriptures, He will refer to some hardcore pagans as His instruments. He will use pagan kings to judge the people of God because of their indifference towards things that they shouldn't be indifferent to. And then God extinguishes them. And God doesn't answer their prayers. Why? Because they're lukewarm. And some of you this morning, you're lukewarm. Remember, the church at the end of the age will be a lukewarm church, Jesus said. It will not be a church that will be passionate and on fire for Christ. I was just received last night a, a blog from someone and they said, it's rather unusual, the seminary I go to, on Sunday morning, there are hundreds of cars in student housing and none of them leave to go to church. A lukewarm church at the end of the age. Some of you, if you had something more important like a golf game or a time out on the river or a vacation to start, you wouldn't be here because you build your schedule around what's convenient for you. That's the lukewarm stage. And so when the iniquity have run their course, come to the full, reach their full limit depending on your translation, then God brings his indignation. The dam of God's mercy will break. It broke in the day of Antiochus Epiphanes and it's going to break again when the Antichrist comes. And this world is going to experience wrath like they have never seen. This king is insolent. Uh, Uh, He is also described as as having a fierce countenance. Uh, Verse 23 says he's skilled in intrigue. The New King James says that he understands sinister schemes. He has a fierce countenance. And this word for intrigue is a Hebrew word for riddles. He, he, He has the ability to take naughty problems that no one can solve and to solve them. He understands literally, the text says, dark sentences. How can he do that? Because he has a power that's not his own. He's tapped into the occult. Look, there are law enforcement agencies in our country that will go to psychics to help them to solve murders, and they solve the murders. How is that? Because some murders are inspired by the devil himself. Look, there's a lot that people do that has nothing to do with the devil. It just comes from their fallen, Adamic nature where they're carried away in their own lusts, as James says, and they do evil. But there are some people who have given themselves to the evil one. And if you're into the occult and you're communicating with the demonic world, and you know that the thief who comes to kill and to destroy and to steal used one of his demons to pull off a murder, sometimes you can tell law enforcement who that person is. Why would you want to do that? so that people will be intrigued by the occult, that people will be awed by power. Look, all power is not good power. There's evil power as well as holy power that is at work. And so here's this man who is basically demon-inspired. Verse 24 uh, amplifies on his hellish power. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. But remember, the angel Gabriel tells him that this vision doesn't pertain just to Antiochus, but to the time of the end. And remember, the Bible says in Matthew 24, 12, lawlessness will be increased at the end of time. Things won't get better. Things will get worse. Hell will have a holiday on the earth. More and more people will give themselves over to the lusts and the pleasures of the flesh, and the mystery of lawlessness that Paul speaks of will run its course. And that will create an atmosphere for the Antichrist to come onto the scene. In Revelation 13, verse 2, we're we're told of this one. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. We studied those three images. And the dragon, that's the devil, gave him, this beast, the Antichrist, his power and his throne and great authority. Paul said it in these words in 2 Thessalonians two nine that the Antichrist, he is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So Antiochus is a type, an illustration for a man who is a coming at the time of the end. He will have a hellish ministry. He'll have a hateful ministry. Look now at verse 24. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. There is no doubt that Antiochus Epiphanes had this kind of hateful rule. You can read about it in a non-inspired book called the Book of Maccabees. Between the last prophet, Malachi, and the first writing in the New Testament, Matthew, there's a 400-year period. It's not a silent period because as we will see, Daniel writes about it before it happens. But there's no prophet in Israel. But there are people who are recording history during that time. And there are a couple of books, for instance, called First and Second Maccabees. They're in the Catholic Bible. They are not in our Protestant Bibles. Why? Because they do not meet the tests of inspiration. In the first edition of the King James, all of the Intertestament books were there. Not because they believed they were inspired, but they put them there in the 1611 translation because they thought it would be good history for people to read that would shed light on what happened during these 400 years. But when the Catholics claimed them to be inspired, they took them out of their Bible immediately. But in the book of 1 Maccabees, it describes Antiochus and his hateful ministry. For instance, one mother had two sons. She was deeply committed to the Lord, and she recognized that she needed to have both of them uh, circumcised. And after the circumcision was done, she, Antiochus took those two boys, hung them around the mother's neck after he had slaughtered them, made her walk through the city, and then threw her over the city wall where she was smushed. Another mother had seven sons that were godly men who loved the living God. And Antiochus, because he had a disdain for those who loved the Lord, had them literally fried to death with a flat iron. He had a hateful ministry. And of course, so will the coming Antichrist. What will be his modus operandi? Well, Revelation 20, verse 4 And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image. Heads cut off. Same, vicious, hateful kind of thing. You know, people used to laugh at this 30 years ago, and they said, that is so antiquated. No one would ever do that. Look, we're seeing the spirit of Antichrist at work in our day. He has a hellish ministry, but he also has a haughty ministry. Verse 25, and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. The Antichrist's peace plan is going to deceive the world. And he will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. Now stop there. Just like Antiochus, who is known for his shrewdness and his deceit, who magnified himself in his heart with his braggadocious words, so will be this coming big mouth. We're told in Revelation 13, and there was given to him, the Antichrist, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle that is in heaven. Paul said he is the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God of worship. And he takes his seat in the temple of God, making himself to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. When we come to the 11th chapter, we're going to see Antiochus do this very thing by type. And Jesus is going to reference this experience as a coming future Superman of sorts by the devil. And Jesus will say, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, and is going into the temple and taking a pig, even so there's a coming man. Because Jesus understood this man to be a type who's going to go into the temple and not defile it with pig's blood, but he himself is going to claim to be God. And when you see that, Jesus said, all hell is going to break loose on the earth. This false Messiah with his false peace, will destroy many while they are at ease, the text says. Finally, he has a humbled ministry. This man who is so awful, who is coming upon the earth, he is a hundred thousand times worse than Antiochus Epiphanes, but he will be humbled. Verse 25, he will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. He will be broken, not by the hands of man, but by the hand of God, because... Paul said, the Lord will slay the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Revelation says, and the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. That's exactly what Daniel describes is going to happen, and that's exactly what the Revelation says. And so verse 26 says, the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true. Do you believe it's true? I hope you do. It's a picture of what is going to come. He is in essence saying, he who has ears to hear, listen carefully. Gabriel adds, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. And that's why I'm preaching it today because I believe those days are coming upon us now look, God fulfilled everything Daniel wrote right down to the letter. And if he fulfilled everything right down to the letter one time, I can tell you he's going to do it all over again. Notice Daniel's response. That I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days, and I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Oh, he, he got some explanation from Gabriel, but there are so many more questions he had, but no one could tell him. Now, how should we respond? Let me make some applications as we finish. Number one, based on the context of when these events are yet to take place, I recognize I don't have to fear future events. As a believer, I don't have to fear future events. I spoke with a man who came to our church recently, and he said, Pastor, I... I don't think I'm coming back. I said, is there a problem? He said, you really bother me with all this talk about the Antichrist and hell, and it, it makes me scared. I said, well, it should if you don't know Christ is your Savior. You ought to be scared to death because the time that is going to come, and it may happen in our lifetimes, is the worst time this world has ever known. Matthew twenty four twenty two, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Look, if, if you're banking on becoming a Christian, if you're here listening today and you're not saved, you don't know you're saved, you hope you go to heaven, you think you might, but you don't know, I can tell you, you won't if you die, if Christ comes back in the next 10 seconds, and nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. That's why the New Testament always speaks of the imminent return of Christ, that it's the final hour. It could come at any second. But there's all kinds of prophecy for the second coming that needs to take place. But as God is fulfilling prophecy for the second coming, you know the rapture that precedes that event is all that much closer. But if you're counting on becoming a believer after the church is raptured, I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God, you won't. Because 2 Thessalonians 2 said because they did not receive the love of the truth so to be saved, they will believe what is false. If you've heard the gospel and everyone in this room asks with clarity and power and the rapture takes place, the Bible teaches you will not be saved. The only people saved during the time of the great tribulation are people who have never heard the gospel in clarity and power before. And so it will be too late for you. But if you are saved, you don't need to fear. It doesn't mean you won't have hard times. There are some hard times, I believe, that are ahead for the body of Christ. But you don't have to shiver in your boots because you won't be here for the coming tribulation period because you will have either have died or been raptured. Do you remember what Jesus said in Revelation 3? And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He was holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. He's speaking about the Lord Jesus. No one else qualifies for that but him. Verse eight. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not de- de- denied my name. Oh, by God's grace, thank God we have at least a little power. As a church, we have a little power. We've kept his word. We've not denied his name. Now look at verse 10 in that chapter. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. We're going to study this in detail when we come to the revelation. But God made a promise to the church at Philadelphia because they were genuine, real, living, blood-bought, born-again people, that they would not be here for the hour of testing that would come upon the whole world. Listen, there's never ever in the history of man been an hour of testing that has come on all of the planet at once. But there's coming a day, for there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of town until now, and never shall again, Jesus said. But then he says to this church, he who has an ear... Let him hear what he says to the churches. Please note, this is not what God has said. This is what God is saying. This is not what God said simply to the church at Philadelphia. This is what God is saying to the churches, plural, to Community Bible Church and others. You won't be here for that time. Thank God. Finally, I think by application we ought to share the way of salvation with others. I want to tell you, my friend, just because I have found personal peace and forgiveness and my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life and the Spirit has flooded my heart and borne witness to me that I've become a child of God, I can't do nothing. I must warn people. There's a lot of Christians who are doing important things, but they're not relating those things to eternity. Look, we need to warn people that there's coming a day of judgment, and it's far worse than the coming Great Tribulation, because the Great Tribulation will unfold into an eternal hell of wrath that will never, ever end. And if you're not a believer today, and the church is raptured, it will be forever too late. You think, oh, that won't happen. It's going to happen one of these days. And it will be forever too late for you. And you will have no excuses before the living God because there's a pastor here in Buford, South Carolina, who is warning you today what the Scripture says. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be forever too late. Our Father, what a privilege it is that you would deem us ambassadors for Christ, that we can point men and women and boys and girls to a Savior who has died, who can provide forgiveness and a right relationship with yourself. I pray today, Father, for somebody here who's listening to my voice. Maybe they're in Bluffton, maybe they're in Graniteville or streaming somewhere around the world. Father, thank you for our internet and the many countries every week that listen. I pray today for someone who's unsure of heaven and I pray that today that they would call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. For you said, whosoever will may come, whoever will call upon his name will be saved. Would you recognize that he is Lord? He is the one who bore all of your wrath that you might have forgiveness. Why wait another moment? Why not say in simple childlike faith, Lord Jesus, save me. And because you have saved me by your death and resurrection, I will openly confess you before men and spend the rest of my life in gratitude living for you. Now, Father Jesus, you said, is the spirit of prophecy. And you've given us prophecy not just to fill our heads, but to shape us into the image of your Son. So help us to heed what you wrote centuries before by your prophet Daniel. We thank you that we have the most amazing book in the world written by you. We pray that we would heed its words today and that you would use us in this week to live for Jesus, to enjoy his presence, and to tell people the good news. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.